Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Latina Business Coach Podcast. We are continuing our hashtag Amplifica webinar series to create allyship. You guys, we are not done talking about being anti-racist, about learning and unlearning. And every single week for the next seven weeks, me and some other powerful Latina entrepreneurs and leaders here in Arizona are amplifying other powerful and amazing, beautiful black women and black voices through our platforms via webinar. Every week we have a different conversation. And this week, uh, the conversation was about raising future generations and how to talk to your kids about racism. It was actually facilitated by a very good friend of mine named Beth Yohani, who is a creative director and wardrobe stylist here locally in Arizona. I'll tag her information in the notes. And she invited Dr. Jessica Sneed who is a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, We had such a great conversation. We all took so many great notes. Honestly, I asked both of them for permission to just be able to share that recording via podcast. They both said yes, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you guys because I know a lot of you are moms or future moms, and we just know that we need to have these conversations. We know we need to ask the right questions to be able to listen, to be able to hear where our kids are coming from, and just really to be able to continue to address it culturally. I'm so excited to introduce formally Dr. Jessica Sneed, who is a licensed clinical psychologist She's committed to improving the well-being of her clients from a strength-based, culturally sensitive, and multi-theoretical evidence-based perspective. She is the owner of Valley Faith Psychological Services, PLLC, where she provides individual and couples therapy for adults. Her areas of specialty include mood disorders, couple marital conflict, life transition, work-related stress, women's issues, personal growth, group work, and Christian counseling. Dr. Sneed also offers consultation services to businesses and provides trainings for different areas of interest please call or text to book an appointment with dr jessica sneed i'm going to go ahead and attach her information in the notes as well as her instagram information so without further ado let's get right to it thank you for having me you know beth when you first asked me about this i was just blown away and just so excited for this opportunity so i'm excited to dive in just like we did earlier in the week (laughs) to really unpack this stuff. Um, Just as a side note, you know, this is such a huge topic. So just off the bat, I know we cannot touch on everything, Um, Mm -hmm. but just know that it's always an ongoing conversation and that's really what this is about in general. And so just being comfortable with that as well, we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability, but just know that sometimes it's okay not to know everything and it's part of the process. Yeah, no, and thank you for being so frank and honest, but like, you're right, there's just like so much to cover. So I think what we'll start off is just tell us about yourself, you know, a little bit of your background or whatever you're gonna share. Absolutely, so just like Beth um, has stated, I am a licensed clinical psychologist. Um, I am practicing now in the state of Arizona. I'm originally from Los Angeles County, Los Angeles, California, in Carson, California. Anybody knows about the South Bay. (laughs) Um, That is uh, where I was born and raised. And then I moved here um, in Arizona, I believe about maybe three years ago now. I am a wife. I am a mother as well. And so this topic is going to touch me and just not just professionally with the way that I work with clients, but also 
in my personal experience growing up, of course, as an African-American woman, as a Black woman, um, as well as raising now a Black daughter. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. I am also um, the CEO and owner of my own private practice here called Valley Faith Psychological Services. I am currently seeing clients and adapting, adopting new clients. I specialize in individual treatment as well as couples therapy, as Beth has noted. So um, with my practice, I teach uh, and do a lot of psychotherapy and psychoeducation on different major modalities of treatment. That includes cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, um, some DBT work. I know these are like terms that are probably like, what are the all these? All these things are just basically what we call evidence-based treatments, which are treatments that have been known and shown to treat depression, anxiety, and other disorders efficiently, and it's backed by research. So um, I do work from that framework as well as very personally as well. <laughs> um, so I love what I do. I love the clientele. I'm also trained in what's called multicultural community psychology, MCCP emphasis in my training, which is really about how to talk about these issues with clients, especially when they come up in terms of racial stressors, like microaggressions, like we'll talk about um, today a little bit, um, as well as other related things that are related to race and how to pretty much integrate that into treatment. Um, so it's definitely an ongoing passion for me, and I can go on and on about myself, <laughs> but that's just a little bit, um, and I'm sure other things will be revealed as we discuss more. Also fascinating. So again, we're so grateful to have you on. Thank you for sharing all of that. You are a total boss. So Jessica, I know you have a 20-month-old, so Chance, she's just a little one going into the toddler stage. What advice would you give to, you know, those of us who have older children um, based on how you grew up or what you plan to teach Chance regarding what's going on right now? So um, one of the major tips that I will give to parents is really educating yourself on what's going on. And so a lot of times, each person is at what we call different stages of racial identity development. And so in psychology, what we have is a lot of specific identity models based on a person's race, ethnicity, and or background. And a lot of times our development in terms of what we know differs. And especially how we receive the information that we're giving us can be received differently based on where we are in terms of our development. And so one of the major tips that I would always give, and it always helps to know how to talk about these issues and translating into our children, is really working on yourself first. I touched a little bit on what we call racial identity models. I do want to kind of talk about that a little bit. That's kind of the academia part of me. <laughs> to be general, um, first off, and I'll be looking down a little bit because I'm a note taker, so I love outlines. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Monica Blyde will tell you that she's on this um, live as well. It's really about knowing that you can't guide your children further than where you are. And so that's where the, where the real motivation for that parent comes in, where it's not just about teaching that parent or teaching that child, excuse me, but really about understanding where you are in terms of uh, your identity development. So the one that I really wanna to touch on right now is what's called the white racial identity model. 
yes, there is a racial identity model for white people that's empirically researched <laughs> because white people also have an identity that they need to know where they are in terms of the stage that they're in and how to process. And then later on, of course, talk about these things with their children. And so the first stage that is typical is what's called the contact stage. And the contact stage is the stage where it's the colorblind method of thinking, okay? So it's the stage where a lot of people, even sometimes people of color adapt this, where it's, okay, well, we're just not really gonna even touch on race. Race doesn't even matter. Let's ignore color. Let's just say that we're all this, I guess, gray. I don't even know what color we would be. <laughs> in a colorblind method, but it's basically kind of like this aversion and even sometimes fear of talking about race because it goes into the notion that if you talk about race, then you're igniting racism. So I just want to first start off by telling people to dismantle that quickly for the sake of your children. Okay. Um, along with that, um, that contact stage, Again, it's again, perceived as harmful, these racial differences. Oh, we don't wanna discuss race. We don't wanna talk about differences. It just doesn't matter. Let, let's just leave well enough alone, okay? Then what happens is that there's a second stage of development called disintegration. And that part is when that person of European descent starts to experience different things that go against their original ideology. Right. So there's something that happens, whether it's on the news, ding, ding, ding. Right. Or somewhere else where they really start to get confronted with this colorblind method. Like, hmm, like, well, in that news article, race actually mattered. OK, well, let me figure out how I'm going to deal with this. And so a lot of people deal with that kind of state that often results in feelings of guilt, shame. Right. So that's kind of what we've also been seeing in the news with different people like damn, They just have this overall guilt of, wow, like what's I'm being confronted that race actually matters. And that's making me feel uncomfortable. Right. And then there's what's called the reintegration stage. And again, I'm going through all these stages because at one point in time or another, a lot of times these are the same stages that you would have to help your children navigate through. Okay. So that's the major point of like really trying to figure out what stage am I in? <laughs> okay. So with that, the next step is like the reintegration stage. This is a stage where it's still not kind of going towards a positive realm. It's kind of like after you feel the guilt and shame, then there's like this defense mechanism that happens, right? So that defense mechanism is, well, I'm feeling this guilt and shame. I need to put it somewhere, but I'm not really ready to confront it in a healthy way. So maybe there is racial differences, right? But maybe they deserve it. Maybe it was something that those other people did to bring that on. So it's not about me. It's not about race, racism on, on this side of things. But obviously, there was something that happened on their end that made them responsible for them being the victim. Does that make sense? After that stage, there is what's called a pseudo-independence that occurs. And so if the person is able to combat those feelings, they move on to the, this next stage. And this is actually the first pseudo-positive stage, kind of leaning towards, well, what we're going towards right now is an active anti-racist um, identity. So that is the 
the goal here, right? But they, sometimes people just don't jump there. These are the process of, in this specific model, the white identity model kind of like goes, right? So within the pseudo-independence model, um, the stage, it doesn't they don't believe that whites actually deserve the privilege like the previous stage, but they still look to people of color instead of themselves to solve the problem of racism. So the ownership take of what that looks like in terms of dealing with racism, handling it in the anti-racist way is still not being adapted. It's, okay, well, Black people tell us what to do. Or, okay, well, um, Black people educate us, or people of color, brown, brown people, let's educate me on how, how this thing works, right? So again, it's the ownership. It's kind of still, in a way, distancing. Again, this may not be intentional, they don't know, right? That it could be considered harmful to us or triggering, right? <laughs> In some kind of way, but it, but it really is. But this is kind of, again, the, they're trying to grapple with it, y'all. This is just kind of how the process goes. So then after that, the last two steps kind of come together a little bit, but the, the next step is the immersion and immersion stage. And then this is where there's an actual real genuine attempt to really identifying where I am in this white identity model. What does this look like? What is my white identity? How does it play a part? Again, now it's becoming more of an ownership piece, right? This is like the beginning stages of becoming, you know, anti-racist. You're learning more. You know, you're doing your own homework. You're Googling things. You know, you're interacting, having conversations, not tokenism, right? But having genuine allyship in that kind of way. And so then towards the end is what we call the autonomy. And the last stage is included and the previous one, which is the discussions that are have have been had, the acknowledgement of the white privilege, the ownership of the knowledge, but it's also becoming actively anti-racist, which includes pursuing social justice. What I love about this platform is I think it literally embeds that autonomy stage, right? It's making those connections educating others in a huge platform, using your platforms to actually be actively anti-racist. Wow. So what would you tell parents that are afraid to have these conversations and that avoid these tough conversations with their kids? A lot of people don't know where to start, whether it's because yeah, like even, even if you're someone of color, sometimes you're afraid to, you know, to take that step. And then if you're not, but you have kids that are, that are mixed, or if you do have, you know, children of color, you're just scared because maybe you haven't experienced that yourself. So what, what advice would you give? Absolutely. Again, starting with the work yourself so you can become comfortable with talking about it to your children, right? And so we already discussed that. Also, again, identifying which stage of identity development that you are in. And then after you do the work, then it starts to become easier. And then you start to understand the importance of talking to your children about racism in the first place, right? Because it's hard, like you said, to jump from like one end to the next when you haven't done that internalized work. But once you get there, and it's still uncomfortable, because it is a very um, triggering topic. And I'm just be honest with <laughs> even to you know a black woman you know I'm just you know it, it can be but when I realize how important it is it's so important to tackle these issues early I'm gonna drop a few 
more stats and, you know, on you. Children as early as six months can start to identify racial differences. By the time that they're between two and four years old, they can actually start to internalize racial bias. It is so important to talk to your children as soon as possible, as my 20, even with my 20 month old, right? To point out differences, help them appreciate them at that time when it's you know more of infancy, but probably below like five years old, right? It's more about identifying it, not being afraid of it. Our differences are beautiful, you know? That's what makes us unique. So these are the different things that, of course, and translated into child English, <laughs> that you can start to talk about your children, you know, in a certain kind of way. If you have the privilege of having a young child, um, you can start off pretty easily because you're identifying things that are positive. Wow, look at that pretty little black girl. Like, you know, she's so pretty. Look at her curly hair. It's so thick and long, or it's so thick and curly and up to her ears. So literally, you want to catch them as soon as possible so then you can start to actually label those things that are typically labeled bad and negative. You can actually label it for your child. So then when they start to hear other messages, it's not easily as accepted because they learned from you first, if that makes sense, right? With those stats, it's so important to start as early as possible. By the age of 12, many children become set in their beliefs about racial biases and race in general. So as parents, we have a good decade of really tackling this as efficiently as possible to have the most influence on our children in those crucial years because then it starts to consolidate then they already have their opinions about brown people black people asians like they it's it's already kind of there so that's why again please managing the anxiety taking the deep breaths we can even do some diamatic diaphragmatic breathing up in here, right? Um, but learning how to take a brief deep breath to manage your anxiety of these hard conversations, understanding that in the beginning, it's all about appreciation and identification and even pointing out and saying, wow, look at her, you know, beautiful brown skin. It's different, but it's really pretty and it'll protect you from the sun child, you know, all, you know, whatever you want to say, okay? Um, <laughs> the way you translate it can be your own. So it's not about adopting this new character of, okay, now I'm an anti-racist parent and this is exactly what I say and how I move. You can be fundamentally and fully the same parent that you are in terms of your character, in terms of how you relate yourself to your children, and also adopt these new things. It's literally just adding things to your parental, parental tool belt. I do have Julia here who said, she said she loves what you said about putting a label on diversity before kids learn labels from others. Putting Eurocentric beauty standards on pedestal can also look like ignorance or avoidance of brown and black characteristics, mm. which is so true, Julia. 
I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. One thing that I do want to bring up, um, I think it's always so important to share your own personal experience, like what you have, if you have experienced anything with either um, someone who has, you know, maybe treated you a certain way because you are Black or any microaggressions that you have experienced yourself, whether you're growing up or as an adult, and maybe how you handled them or how your parents helped you through them. Absolutely. You know, Beth, I loved and appreciated our conversation about this because you really have uh, kind of helped me, in a sense, kind of unpack a lot of things that sometimes unconsciously I have, you know, put on the back burner. And a lot of times, you know, comparison can kind of uh, kill your own experience. And so um, for me, um, in general, I have not had, you know, thank the Lord, I have not had a lot of major, what we call macro aggressions towards me in my childhood experience. However, my husband brought up one major <laughs> experience that I did have as early as kindergarten that now I vividly remember. As a child, I was going to a predominantly white Christian um, school. I was, I believe, maybe the only black kid, or maybe there was like only one other black girl there. I'm not sure, but I was really like just pretty much like the only one. And so I remember I had real difficulty making friends, right? And again, as a kid, you're just like, oh, they just don't like me. You know, you're, you're thinking other things maybe, right? You're not just thinking, oh, it's because I'm black. You don't really internalize that yet, right? Even though you know difference. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you know, you're not internalizing that. Um, but I also had difficulty with my teacher. Um, and I could tell that my teacher would treat me more sternly compared to the other kids in class to where when I would ask a question or had, you know, issues with something, I literally remember her being so harsh and me taking note that other kids weren't getting the same treatment. And so when I told my mother that, who's also a, uh, she's a clinical psychologist herself, um, African-American woman. Um, we don't want to assume but she is. And I told, and I guess I, in a way I was able to relay that to her in a way where she caught it. And she was like, oh no, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, <laughs> and so I remember there being back and forth. Again, it's very vague. And again, it's from my own, like, you know, cognitive relaying and thought process from then, you know, it might be distorted, but who knows. But I, re I do remember though, there being a lot of back and forth and there being a lot of tension. Don't remember exactly what was talked about. And then it got to a point where my, I remember me and my mother going straight to the principal's office and my mother saying, my daughter's getting unfair treatment. You know, she's, you know, not doing well at this school. You know, she's bright, so what's going on? I, I don't, we're not gonna tolerate this. And I remember my mom, like in a sense, sitting me down and saying like, listen, like we are going to move schools for you. So it was literally that important because I was starting to get affected. And so that's why it's so, going back to the original view, it's so important not to ignore it because your kids might not come to you and your kids might just think, oh, I'm just getting, you know, uh, you know, I'm just, people are, you know, the kids are treating me bad, mommy. Ask them questions. Well, what are they doing? Okay, well, why, why, why do you think, you know, well, why, you know, why are they treating you that way? They may not know the why, but then you're just literally like kind of 
getting their mind to think and and also you getting information yourself. I use that one, that one small example from when I was very young, number one, to highlight the fact that you better start early because the world will if you don't. Also, number two, my mother literally and actively showed me to combat racism by activism. And so as I grew up, especially when I dealt with more microaggressions in adulthood, um, and I'll tell and I'll explain probably my, my, my theory of why that is. My mother always really influenced the idea of activism, standing up for yourself. Okay, well, you feel like you had a bad grade on this. Okay, well, let's look at it. Did you, you know, you know, what, what did another person's grade look like that did the same mistakes? Oh, they were ignored. Like, so there's all these different biases in school and in the world, um, especially as far as children are concerned at school, right? And even with the teachers. So y'all pay attention to the teachers. You know, teachers, I love them. If you guys are teachers here, I love you guys. But um, as some of you teachers may know, you might see some questionable people that are like, mm, okay, you know, they, they need some education, <laughs> um, some more education. But uh, my mother really helped instill activism and really kind of challenging and combating those unfair imbalances that I've experienced. Um, as far as adulthood, again, I believe that I experienced more microaggressions in adulthood versus during K through 12 because I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. So that's to say that there isn't any intra-racial biases in the African-American community. But when it comes to microaggressions specifically, a lot of times those mainly occur when a person of color is in a predominantly based culture, right? Whether that's in their school system, their church, and or their community, okay? So the more and more that a person of color interfaces with predominantly white cultures, the more those microaggressions will occur. So that is my theory as to why I may have not have, I kind of may have been protected in that kind of weird way of experiencing those. But Child, when I went to grad school, mm, mm, that was a different story. And that was at a school where it was accredited, all that good stuff. And they're teaching psychology. I'm not going to say, you know, what it, where it was, but um, it was just this one professor. Okay, we're going to go there. I was in my psychoanalytic class. And this professor, I never had a problem with him. He, I was actually like his teacher's pet, I guess, whatever. Like I always had the right answers. But I had my, you know, I do my hair different ways. Child, I'll put a wig on. I'll put, I'll, I will press this hair out. Like, you know, when it was longer, I'll wear it like this, right? It's just a part of the culture. <laughs> so before my, my microaggression incident, I always wore my hair just down pressed, you know, had some extensions, weave, whatever, right? And so, <laughs> that week I decided to take it out and just wear my hair. And I think I wore it in like um, a twist out, you know, where it's, it's in this natural state, you twist it and then you unravel it. And then it's like, you know, kind of like a curly, you know, look for those who may not be familiar. Right. And so it was kind of puffy, like an Afro, but just had a little dimension to it. So another student mentioned it. She was like, Oh, you look a little like, um, what did she say? She was like, Oh, you look a little like Whitney Houston. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll take the young one. Right. <laughs> I was like, okay, she's gorgeous. 
Um, so I was like, you know, thank you. And then the professor overheard it, white male, older in age. And then he laughed and then he said, ha yeah, cause you do look a little high. And so I just looked at him and my, uh, the, the student that said it, the, the compliment to me, she was just like, wow, like I didn't have the words. Because sometimes when things like that happen, you know, they can be brushed off what we call micro invalidations, right? That's another term where a person of color can experience something like that. And then someone else can say and come in and hear that same story and say, well, you might be being too sensitive or, well, maybe not. That's maybe not because you had like Afrocentric care. Maybe he just didn't like the style, you know, just, just anything that is invalidating your experience, kind of pulling it back to the children again, making sure and understanding what those microaggressions are. And then after you know what that is, when your child starts to talk to you, you can identify that and go, mm, and then catch it. Because if you don't catch it, they still feel it. They don't know what it is. They don't know what that icky feeling is of feeling different or oh, like, you know, or you're so pretty for, you know, a Latina, you're so pretty for a black girl. It's like, thanks, you know, and they might, you know, they might take it as a compliment, but then some, but then there's still something that happens, right, internally. And the research shows that if a person continually experiences that, and it's argued that we do, whether through media or just personal experience, that the more and more we get exposed to that, it has the same effect as something literally being a macro aggression, which is a literally racist incident. You know, you've been beat, even if you've been beat up because you've been, because you're a person of color, because you're black, because you're, you know, Hispanic or whatever. All those daily insults, all those daily microaggressions that are considered innocent, right? When you pile them up, they have the same psychological effect as those major macroaggressions. And so that's why it's so important not to push it aside. Oh, they're just being mean. No, you bring that child over and say, hey, that wasn't right. You validate that experience. You validate those emotions. You validate all of those feelings that they had in that moment. So you make sure not to just you know, oh, they're just being a bully. No, you take that baby by the hand and say, hey, that wasn't right. What was that person's name? And then sometimes you can tell them based on your parental style, right? Again, I'm not the go-to for that, right? Because that's culturally based. That's, you know, that's a whole lot of things. But in your own little culturally uh, aligned frame, you can say something like, well, you know what? You know, they said that, but guess what? You just a pretty girl anyway. You, you, you a pretty girl for a white, you, you a pretty girl in front of white girls, you a pretty girl in front of everybody, you know, just, and that literally lessens the load. Okay. I'm gonna just stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't, you don't have to stop talking. We honestly, we're all taking notes. Like I can see everyone is just then we have Didi um, who said, I find it easier to have the conversations with my younger child. I have a harder time discussing it with my almost 13 year old. He is yeah. consuming what's in the media from every platform. You know, these TikTok kids, LOL. Uh, we have very open and honest conversations because I don't want to censor what's going on in the world for him. How can I be supportive of him as he navigates all of this for himself or his cousins and friends? It's heartbreaking as a parent when your kids start to 
conceptualize the hate that still exists in the world. So uh, I don't know if I really read it as a question, but Com yeah. yeah, I could just, you know, comment, comment on it because it's, it's real and it's true. And it's, um, again, like it just kind of literally fits the research that, you know, he's, he's at that stage where, you know, everything is pretty solidified. So now everything is just funneled through whatever has been already established. Not to say that it can't be dismantled, the things that need to be adjusted, but um, like you said, it's more of a mature kind of um, dynamic at that point. And so a lot of times with that, it's all about giving at-home lessons that never stop really until they get out the house. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it's always um, about giving them those home lessons on American history, showing them the protests. I would always like to avoid, I think even at 13, you know, it's hard. Like she said, the TikTok kids show it, you know, whatever it is. But you always want to kind of, in a sense, protect them being fearful. You know what I mean? And that's the mm -hmm. hardest thing to control i ain't gonna lie to you and i'm not gonna say that it, it, it's perfect and that it can always be done perfectly yeah. but definitely trying to um as much as you can in your control looking to see what's actually on the media even as an adult sometimes i'm like you know what i hear about it i hear about a shooting i hear what's caught on tape i don't want to see it I just don't want to see it. And you can literally be as, as much as an activist as you can, right? As, as much as your child wants to be without exposing them to those major traumas. So that's not necessarily necessary, okay? Especially as children. Again, at that stage, as they're going into their teenage years, just always having those conversations, looking at the protests, asking questions like, well, what do you think? How do you think they feel about that? Man, why do you think they're so angry? You know, just different things to kind of engage with them, not just being like the superior of telling them how to think, but literally listening to see where they are, listening to see, oh, okay, well, you know, their racial identity model may not be all the way to, you know, protesting in the streets. They might just go, well, you know, maybe, maybe that, you know, maybe there was a reason why they were okay with doing that to him. You know, you, you have to understand and ladies, hold your, hold your peace. <laughs> sometimes you know you might hear something crazy from your kid and then you're like oh snap like what am i raising right just it's okay engage like, oh don't say that or you know a lot of times when you know kid, little kids start pointing out differences like oh like he's brown and we'd be like shut up like you know going <laughs> you know but um just saying, oh yeah like you know just just kind of like taking that deep breath and being inquisitive because what you don't want to do is shut them out, even, you know, as teenagers, because of a bad thing or a not so good thing that they said, and now they're not going to talk to you. And that's more dangerous. Again, I would just, you know, encourage um, that mommy to continue what she's doing. This is the work here, just listening and learning. And again, just being able to turn on the TV to appropriate things, you know, nothing too outlandish, even though the world is outlandish and having those conversations. I love that. I love that advice that you gave um, Didi. Um, and I get what you mean, like asking them. Sometimes kids watch things and you share things with them. And sometimes you have to ask them a question 
for them to kind of like think for themselves. And then maybe they, they haven't asked themselves that question because they're just watching constantly. So maybe like, oh, huh, like I did never thought of that. Like, why are they so angry or why are they so upset? So it gets the ball rolling for themselves as well. So I love that so much. I'm going to read a few more messages on here. People are really responding. Travis said, being mixed growing up in Arizona, the microaggressions and racial biases are part of my earliest memories at school. Mm. Um, I hear that all the time from people of color. Kaya said, ooh, micro-invalidations, writing that down happens to me at work all the time. I thought I was being sensitive. Julia said, my favorite is when people say, you're so exotic because you have curly hair or whatever. <laughs> Laura said, I hate admitting this, but I know I have been that person to make innocent or so I thought microaggressive comments. I believe I have made true and honest changes and take pride in knowing, sorry guys, I'm gonna cry. It's my sister. <laughs> um, I believe I have made true and honest changes and take pride in knowing I'm actively making the effort to learn more on all of these topics. I am full Mexican married to a white man and with three mixed children. So I am definitely trying to learn the best way to have these uncomfortable conversations. Um, and Julia said to Laura, love that Laura, the first step is admitting where you're at and admitting where you want to be. What would you say is a good way to console your children when they're being bullied over race or ethnic features at school? So what's, a, you know, um, I know obviously we can validate them and all that, but what, what else would be a good thing to, you know, they have to go back to that every day. What advice do you have for that? Advocate for them, teach them how to empower themselves and you empower them. It's going to be tackled, I would, I would believe in different ways. Number one, individually with that child. So what you're gonna do is you're going to validate, you're going to let them know that that experience was dead wrong, and then you're going to empower that child to say what it really is, whatever that is. I, you know, we can go through several examples, right? But all in all, um, that's kind of the message that you want. And then you want them to see how you as a parent advocate for them. And it means so much, just like it means so much to me as an adult to see people other than Black people stand up for Black Lives Matter. We can do it all day, but for some reason it hit different when we see other people advocating for us. And so doing that for your child and kind of molding and, and kind of modeling that for them is gonna be, uh, I think, very empowering for them. And then you empower the child to help advocate for themselves too. Whatever that looks like, I mean, that could look completely different based on the kid, the grade level, you know, the safety as well. Also, you know, the policies of school, hell, get the school involved, you know what I mean? Just there's a whole lot of things that are in play, especially when it comes to even just the age level breakdown, you know, really looking at all of those factors and then kind of judging the best way to handle that situation in terms of safety, in terms of advocating for that child, um, but always making sure that they're safe. Now, if it does get to a point where it's really detrimental for that child, that child is really getting impacted and it doesn't seem like it's really handling itself even after all the efforts there may be a decision that has to be made mom you know it may be or dad it may be something that you really have to think about and put on the table of okay well maybe this environment isn't good for my child it's not about at that point just working it through and pushing it through and not being a quitter you know because sometimes we're like okay no we're not going to run away from situations or you know we're going to you know learn to deal with it and there is a time and place for that 
But sometimes the mental health of that baby, that little brown or black baby, might take a little bit more precedence. And so putting them into a safer environment that's more accepting, even though the education level is great, the emotional level of that, of what that environment is eliciting is as equally as important. Worst case scenarios, there's a whole bunch of levels to this. <laughs> um, and there isn't a clear cut answer, but literally tackling that issue. And so the kid knows that, oh, this is really important. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, it's not something that's just going to be brushed under the rug. Okay. It's something that, that needs to take precedent. You're, you're helping them learn about social justice through you. Love that. Love that so much. I'm going to read this very quickly. Veronica said, one of the things I'm trying to do is trying to chronicle my journey of education and activism to show my future children and my Black goddaughter that I always have her back. So that's awesome, Veronica. Yeah, I love that so much. I guess I want to say it's a personal question, but I know I won't be the only one on here who this will apply to. I wanted to ask your opinion on mixed children. So we, you, Earlier, you did touch base on, you know, the biases that are within the Black community, right? Like those things that happen within the Black community. So what would you say or what have you seen or what advice do you have for those children, for example, who um, are like, for example, like my son, who are, you know, mixed and they're like, clearly you look at them, you're like, they're mixed, but they are pulled back and forth. And I'm asking mostly because I hear a lot from Travis, right? Growing up, it's like he was never black enough or ever white enough. It was like his mom's German and his dad's black. So it's always, even though most of his friends were all black growing up, he always had those, those comments from other people who didn't know him, you know, oh, like, you're, you're, you're not even full black or you're not even, you know, what, what do you think? You point out a huge aspect of being biracial, multiracial, and the pulling of identities. That is even researched. Maria P.P. Root, she has a, a biracial identity uh, model, and it's Resolutions of Biracial Identity Tensions. I just pulled it up um, out of my million notes here. <laughs> Similar to those that identify and are from two parents of the same race, those that are biracial have a little bit of a different experience, right? Especially if you're not even from two people of color, whatever differences those are, but especially if you're black versus white and all the tensions and things that can happen with that. I say that to say that within this model, it talks about the end goal being a move from fluidity among racial groups, but identifies most strongly with other biracial people, regardless of specific heritage and background. So um, it goes through different stages. And again, it goes from like, okay, well, I only identify as like one. Um, and a lot of times it's just like negating the other. Sometimes it's about choosing one group, but it's ind independent of social pressure, right? So it's just like, okay, well, it's not like I was forced in this group, but I just end up being here because that is what I identify as. It's more of the end goal of being able to accept both and kind of being fluid within it, a completely up to the up to your son at, at that point to I, define what he's identified as. He might just identify as black, you know, or, you know, he might identify as both. But just also having the understanding that within American society, more than likely a nine times out of 10, he's probably just going to be considered black independent from what he self-identifies. As long as that kind of education is met and then, you know, understanding and validating 
um, that cognitive dissonance that he has. Like, no, no, I'm both. I'm equal. I'm this or, you know, whatever he wants to identify. And they're like, no, you're this or no, you're not accepted because you're not full black, like whatever it is. Right. Kind of setting him down and understanding that, hey, like, you know, this is, you know, your experience. And, you know, I may not have like all the answers about it, but you always have the power to identify yourself. But at the end of the day, there is a reality that you look a certain way and, you know, other people are going to treat you as such. So like, how do we identify, like, how do we tackle that? Like, what are some ideas that you might have? Or, you know, what are some, some sayings? Like he, he can even start to like, have like a little statement ready. You know what I mean? Of like role plays that you can have. Um, I'm, I'm so into role playing. It's like, no, nobody's business. Um, <laughs> but um, just role playing, I, you know, things that he has experienced. Okay. So next time, you know, I'll be the guy that says that same thing that hurts you, right? And then you're like, okay, what are you going to say? You can be like, well, you know, it's none of your business what I am or, you know, what, whatever it is to kind of have him become like having that ownership again of power, because that's what they're doing. They're taking away his power. They're taking away his identity and trying to label him, whatever it is. So again, he's taking back that, that power in that way. So rehearsals, role plays, role playing issues that have happened in the past, things that he could say, you know, kind of wrestling with that based on his personality, you know, might differ. But uh, I would definitely encourage acting out the things in advance, you know, even before a child or other um, person's kid, as a person of color, you probably know what happens, right? And what has been said to you and what has been told to you because of your skin color or eye color or whatever it is. And so then you're like, okay, like, you know, this, you know, these are some things that might be brought up. Like, what, what would you say? Or even better, what would you say if you saw someone else um, be told those hurtful things? So then you're helping them become an advocate for someone else. Huge if you can instill that in your children. That changes generations, in my opinion. So amazing. Thank you so much, Jessica. Like, that literally helps pages of notes. Sylvia said, uh, Dr. Sneed, thank you for your powerful words. This evening, I'm almost in tears by some of the things you have shared because I have had students ask or question my support because they have not felt loved or accepted by so many. Jessica said, so incredibly grateful to have this conversation as a mom of two toddlers. Dr. Sneed, you are so beautiful and your energy is radiant. You are literally overflowing through the screen. Uh, Julia said, even as a woman with no kids yet, all of your words were so helpful for me to spread to my friends with kids. I agree with everybody above. Lastly, before we wrap this up, I do want to ask you, is there a specific place where everyone can find all of these, you know, uh, models for microaggressions or to find what level they're at so that they can put them to use? Absolutely. So what I can do is there's a PDF for it to, I can actually post it to my Instagram. My Instagram is at Dr. Sneed, PhD. I'll make a story and a post on it. So again, do the work that will help you do the work so you know where you are. It will help you do the work in terms of your children and figuring out where they are and help you have a guideline to where they need to progress. Um, it gives you a little bit more empathy as well that this is a process. Not everybody is going to be woke <laughs> from one book, right? It's, it's literally a process and that's okay. Jocelyn said, yes, I don't have kids either, but this was so helpful for the future. You're so amazing, Dr. Sneed. Lauren said, this has been so good. I've learned and realized even things about myself and my past just in this short discussion and how I will address this topic with my own kids when I have them one day. Thank you for the education. 
Uh, Sonia said, thank you so much. This was so good. Definitely doing the work so that when I do have children, I can help them as well. And yeah, thank you so much, Jessica. You were, gosh, you were so amazing. Um, I mean, come on, like I even cried. <laughs> And I think a lot of the girls were very emotional. I think it's, I think it's um, everything overall is very emotional for everyone. Um, but when it comes to children, everyone is even more emotional. So I think we all just want to do the part, whether we have children of color or not. I think it's important to do your part because, I mean, how else are we going to grow as a community, right? Unless I could literally going to start with our kids. God bless you all and uh, keep hope alive, everyone. <laughs> yo, yo. Thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I'm so grateful for you. If you want to keep hearing podcasts like this, nothing inspires me more than seeing that people are subscribing. So please subscribe, please leave a review and tell me what are some of the key lessons you learned and how you're going to apply this to your business. Also, can you do one more thing for me? Take a screenshot and post it. I'll definitely share it and just remember one more thing. You could be one strategy away from making it big. Hasta la próxima.